is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew 5, the verses 27 through 30. Where these words of Christ are recorded, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that every one who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In response to the sermon, we'll sing from that psalm of confession that King David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, the stanzas 4 and 5. Dear children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, guests, in the Sermon on the Mount, Rabbi Jesus not only confirmed his orthodoxy, but he preached a message which shocked the people in a way totally opposite to what they thought they were dealing with. Their fear had been that Rabbi Jesus was abolishing the law of Moses. But there was no need to be afraid. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Indeed, even the tiniest commandment, no one says Jesus should be relaxing commandments, not even the least. But then came those words which would have had people shaking their heads. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Pharisees. Those were the people who did their utmost to keep the laws of God. Scribes, those were the people who knew exactly what the laws of God required and forbade. More righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? Indeed, Jesus actually set the bar as high as it can be set. Matthew 5 verse 48, so that comes after the words of our text. Matthew 5 verse 48 You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect like God. Now the words of our text were spoken as an illustration of how one's righteousness might exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. What what that perfect love looks like. The point Christ is making is that it's not just a matter of how things are on the outside. What matters, too, is what's going on inside your heart. To enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be pure in heart. Pure in heart. Of such people, Christ had said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, this is one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
So only if you are among the righteous, more, more righteous than the scribal Pharisee, will you enter the kingdom of heaven. Only if you are perfect like God, if you are pure in heart, will you see God. And then Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery. Now that's a sin few people would commit, at least indeed. But Rabbi Jesus hits the sensitive point when he says everybody who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now there would have been few men sitting on that mountain at Jesus' feet who could honestly say, never done that. And there are also few men sitting on chairs here today that could say, I've never done that. I know I can't say it for myself. As to what happens when lust rules and there is no shame, time and time again, humanity has learned that lesson. The abomination of Sodom and Gomorrah, not just of those who were without God, but also of Lot, who offered his daughters instead of his guests to the men of the city. And then his two daughters, who were not beyond conceiving by their father, their respective sons, Ammon and Moab. Now, God hated this, what, what happened there, so much that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he also forbade every Ammonite and Moabite access to the temple. Even if they'd been in, in Israel already for ten generations. That bit about the Ammonites and Moabites is found in Deuteronomy, and it falls on the heels of this text. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Or think of David and Bathsheba. We'll, we'll sing of David's psalm of confession regarding that sin of adultery. After the sermon, it all began with, yeah, with what? It began with David on the rooftop, looking at a woman with lustful intent as she was bathing. And you've got to realize there, Bathsheba was no stranger to David. The man she was married to, Uriah the Hittite, is listed in Scripture as one of David's mighty men. And given that they were neighbors to the king, Uriah was also one of his best friends. Bathsheba, she's often pictured as the innocent, powerless victim of David's wiles. But that's not necessarily the picture that scripture paints. And so drawing that together, be perfect. Not just in what you do and what people can see. Also in what you think and desire. Be, be pure in heart. Rabbi Jesus was making clear to Israel how, how total human depravity is. It's not just about following bad examples. It's not just about making bad choices. Humans are, to be call, are, are called to be pure in heart. And we're not. And so we're warned by our Savior not to think that all is fine when in truth things are not. Sin runs deeper than we like. And so we'll hear the good news from Jesus Christ with this command, be pure in heart, do not look in order to lust. 
Lord Jesus begins his illustration by noting the commandment as given by God. It was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then the Lord Jesus adds something. Now, it's a bit regrettable that in the ESV and, and many other Bible translations, they, they insert the word, but. That suggests that there's a contrast here. However, there's, there's no need for a contrast here. The word translated, but, can also be translated with the word, and. It could even be left untranslated as it is in verse 29. Now, if you translate and, it makes clear how the Lord Jesus is not just going to teach the need to fulfill the law in its minutest detail, but also what that righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees looks like. Verse 27, 28 would have sounded like this to the Jews sitting there. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And I am telling you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sin against God's commandments, Jesus' point is, isn't just a matter of the outside. It's a matter of the heart. The you shall not commit adultery of the seventh commandment implies the you shall not desire your neighbor's wife of the tenth. Now, people may wonder, why does Jesus point this out? What's the issue here? What's wrong with glancing over or, or even staring in order to desire? This is the argument you often hear when somebody tries to defend the practice of watching pornography. Certainly when pornograph pornographic materials are being produced with consent. What's wrong with that? I'm not hurting anyone, right? Well, to understand what the issue is here, why, why God is so upset with all manner of marital unfaithfulness and, and wrongful sexual intimacy and, and abhors what, what society around us so often condones and approves of, we need to be very clear about the reason God created humans, male and female. Why he united them in marriage. Why he gave husband and wife, them and, and them only, the command to be one flesh through intimacy. It's probably a good idea at this point to grab a Bible and turn with me to Genesis. We're going to look at a few verses in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to begin with Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. It's the uh, sixth day of the creation week. God is about to create the crown of creation, the last creature. Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Now, as that footnote number... Well, this Bible translation is a different number. But anyway, there's a footnote in the bottom of the ESV that indicates that the word for man is Adam. And etymologically, that would actually translate as earthling. It's the parallel of the English word human, actually. Note that the word man is in the singular, and yet the pronoun that follows it, let them, is a plural. That's curious. But it's not all that curious, because earlier in that verse, the same thing happens with God. God said, that's a singular, and yet when God speaks, he says, let us, and he talks about our image. Now, since it's clear from Scripture that God created the human in God's image, 
and not, for example, in the image of God and angels, it's clear that our, in our image, has to be a reference to a plurality of persons within God. We know that to be the Trinity. We actually say that with Belgic Confession, Article 9. So in short, there, there's a certain way in which God is both single and plural. God is one God in three persons. And what this text is telling us is that is somehow reflected in the human, in the Adam, who also in a certain way is both single and plural. So how would that be? Well, Genesis 1 verse 27 So God created man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The them is there defined as male and female. And by the way, the words here are very specific. Um, it doesn't say man and woman in the original. It does say male and female. A very specific reference to the two sexes, the two genders in which God created humans. The human is both single and plural. One human in male and female. And somehow this reflects God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what is that image of God then all about? Well, an aspect of it is having dominion over all creation. Humans, as male and female together, are to be fruitful and to have dominion. Genesis 1 verse 28. And God blessed them, them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion. Now, in doing this together, there has to be a unity of desire, of thought and action. And that is another aspect of the image of God, the requirement to love in harmony. In one of the letters of the Apostle John, we read, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is made full in us. Boys and girls, what that means is you can't see God but you can see people. You can see humans. And humans are the image of God. They've got to reflect God. When you look at a human, you should be seeing God. How? Well, says John, by showing love. It's when we love. It's when we're steadfast and faithful in our love that we're being a true image of God. Love and loyalty, that's the purpose of human existence. That's also why love and loyalty sum up the Ten Commandments. And so realize, congregation, God becomes visible to others in the love and loyalty you show. Love and loyalty. Now what's the highest human expression of love and loyalty? Well, for that we can turn to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 describes for us how God created Adam, male and female. See, at first there's only one Adam. And as Adam, as the human, goes about the business of naming the animals, that's actually an exercise of subduing and having dominion, there's an issue. 
Adam is doing things on his own. There's no one to help him by his side. There's no one that corresponds to him. There's, there's no one that's the same as him. Adam is not having a discussion with someone else what that particular creature should be called. What is its character? Adam is just doing his own thing. But that's not how God does things. There's a plurality of persons within God. In the act of creating, for example, God the Father decreed, and then God the Son made it happen, and then God the Spirit did the work. The analogy one could use here is that of an architect, a contractor, and and the trades. There's this cooperative effort when God does something. And so every act of God becomes an act of love and loyalty. But Adam, the human, he's doing things all alone. And God says, this is God's judgment, this is not good. If Father, Son, and Spirit help each other in creating the world, well then whenever Adam, when the human acts, there needs to be that helping factor. Only if there's two within Adam, two within humanity, can there be love and loyalty of a corresponding kind. And so when Adam, when the first human had experienced it wasn't good for him to be alone, God took Adam and split him into two. He took something from within Adam, something physical. In most Bible translations, it's a rib. Some, it's translated his side. In the words of Adam himself later on, it's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And God worked with whatever he took from the first Adam, and he made a second Adam. The one Adam, the one human, had now become two Adam, two human. Besides the male, there was now also the female. And these two humans were designed and created to correspond to each other, to complement each other, to work together in love and loyalty. And that's why God reunifies the two humans into a single life human. He, he doesn't send the one human to one place on the earth and, another, and the other human to another place on the earth. No, together they will live and work in God's garden. See, first God made the one flesh, two flesh, and then he makes the two flesh, one flesh. Now, what has our interest is especially Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God divided the Adam into male and female, unites them through marriage. And how does God do that? Well, by establishing that through marriage, the flesh that was divided is now joined again into one flesh. And and while that expression, one flesh, certainly is broad, in the first instance, that obviously refers to the act of sexual intimacy, of lovemaking. And if you're not convinced, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. That's hard for us to imagine today. For people to be naked and not to be ashamed. There's, there's, there's sexual things with respect to that. I mean, nobody wants to be seen stark naked. 
Now, why wasn't there any shame? Well, because at the end of day six, everything was very good. Those two humans, male and female, were very good. They were righteous. They were holy in every way. They were pure in the desires of their hearts. They were loving and loyal towards God, towards each other. But then, then came the plunge into sin. And, and I prefer the term plunge into sin to fall into sin because plunge states far more vividly that sinning was a deliberate act. Plunge is, by the way, also the term that the Belgian Confession uses. To quote, man had thus plunged himself into physical and spiritual death. The plunge into sin. Genesis 3 tells us how the first two humans sinned against God. The female human was deceived. She, she looked at the tree. And then Genesis 3 verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Note that. The woman looked and desired Jesus warned against looking to desire. If you thought that our text this morning is just for the guys in church, it's not. It's for all of us. The point is, looking so as to desire what is forbidden, that's already disobeying the commandment of God. Now there's more in chapter 3, verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Who was with her? Those are important words. The man stood by and watched it all happen. Not once did he intervene. The man let the woman do her thing. And then he joined her in doing her thing. Instead of them discussing this, how they should be doing God's thing in this situation, no, the humans refused to reflect God's love and loyalty. And what happened next? 3 verse 7. And note, this is the first thing that's mentioned. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The difficulty with this verse is that there's Hebrew idiom. For example, the word knew here doesn't know that it doesn't mean that the man and woman were innocent, they were ignorant of the fact that they were naked, as in, oh, we're naked. We never knew that. No, the word knew here implies the intimate experience in the heart. Look, for example, at Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. It's the terminology used in the Bible for sexual intimacy. This is what the Bible says about Joseph. Once he finds out it's okay for him to marry his fiancée who is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. We read in Matthew, He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth. Why didn't he know her? To make sure that nobody could think that the child she was bearing was Joseph's child. When a man knows a woman, that expression refers to sexual intimacy. Now, when the man and the woman ate, they both knew that they were naked. 
they began to experience desires they had never known before. Love had become lost. They desired the other for their own end. What they saw, right, their eyes had been opened to a new kind of knowledge, a knowledge of good and evil. What they saw created a situation of selfish lust. And so Genesis 3 verse 7 starts talking about these fig leaves. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. Well, it's obvious what they're doing here. The man and the woman were, were, were designing and, and making a covering of sorts for their private parts. And so they prevented their opened eyes from seeing that which aroused them to lust or to fear. To fear being lusted after. Now fig leaves aren't going to make great clothes. And so God, when he curses creation and curses humanity and, and sends the first two humans out of paradise, he also shows his grace by making for these first two humans garments of skins and clothing them. Just as their eyes had been, had been opened through the plunge and they had come to know lust in their hearts, so the first thing God does is begin restoration by covering that which causes lust. However, that's going to prove insufficient. It's insufficient to simply cover up that which evokes lust. That's just a band-aid on the outside. What needs renewal is the heart on the inside. And all of that congregation, that's the background. The biblical background to what the Lord Jesus says. Here's the answer to that question. Why can't I gaze with lust in my heart when I'm not hurting anyone? The answer is, well, when you gaze to lust, you're no different from the first woman gazing at the tree to desire its fruits. You're no different from the first man taking whatever the woman gives. You're no different from those first two humans who plunge themselves through selfishness into sin and who then destroyed their lives by turning love into lust. And lust leads to death. Yes, leads to death. If nothing is done, the one who looks to lust and who reaches out because of lust, his whole body, says Jesus, will be thrown into hell. The word hell in our text, it translates the Greek word Gehenna, which itself is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Gehinnom, which simply means the Valley of Hinnom, also known as the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. That valley was a real place. It was a valley just outside of Jerusalem. And because of the idolatry that had been committed in that, that valley, the sacrificing of human children by King Ahaz, for example, that particular valley was the dump. That's where you dumped your garbage. That's where you burned your garbage. That's where you also put all the bodies of the worst criminals you can imagine. And so when the Lord Jesus said, your whole body will go into the valley of Hinnon, at a very literal level, he was saying, you are a criminal of the worst kind. And you will be treated as a criminal of the worst kind. Now that doesn't deny the other meaning, 
which is just as literal, that one's body will be subject to the lake of fire, the second death, eternal hell. And even the Jews who were sitting at Jesus' feet on that mountain that day would have realized how Jesus was speaking of both a temporal consequence in the earthly state, as well as an eternal consequence in the existence that follows the judgment of God. And so, congregation, the point that the Lord Jesus is making was this. Where God is concerned, you don't have to commit the physical deed of adultery to be guilty. You're already guilty the moment you cast a glance with a view to desiring. You're guilty when you're driven by lust. For if humanity is the crown of creation, and I like to say marriage is the diamond in that crown, Sexual intimacy is the sparkle in that diamond. For sexual intimacy is God's gift to humans as the highest, as the, as the most supreme expression of human love and loyalty. Think about it. Love your neighbor as yourself. No neighbor is closer than the one. And it should be just the one you share your bed with. Every neighbor is forbidden territory, unless he, if you're a she, or she, if you're a he, is joined to you in holy wedlock. And that's not because God is denying you some fun. It's because God is loving and loyal. He created us humans to be as he is, loving and loyal. And so everything that distorts God's good creation Everything that is driven by selfish lust, by impurity in the heart, is wrong, is forbidden, is condemned. For it's a misrepresentation of God. It touches the very heart of what it is to be human. To be human as males and females together. And that's also why Bible-believing, God-honoring Christians are so against any and every distortion of marriage, of sexual intimacy, of gender identity that God has created. As soon as we distort, as soon as we pervert God's good creation, we're showing total disregard for who God is. It's not just a matter of, well, you can't do that because God says so. It's a matter of, you can't do that because if you do that, you're not being human. As the Lord Jesus points out, to flirt with lust is to flirt with eternal death. And in doing that, he's saying nothing different from the Old Testament. Every year when I teach wisdom literature to the grade 12s, I'm the grade 12 Bible teacher at Cradle High School, we spend a bit of time in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. For no teenager should be unaware of how serious God is about this. Proverbs 5, we're going to read that all this afternoon later. For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. The one who goes into adultery, Proverbs 5 says, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great stupidity, he is led astray. Proverbs 6, which we read, that's about a man who draws in a woman, like David drawing in Bathsheba. 
Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. And then Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7, that's about a woman who entices a man, like Potiphar's wife enticing Joseph, or Delilah enticing Samson. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. See? When the Lord Jesus speaks of Gehenna, of hell, he's simply teaching what Proverbs already taught. And so be pure of heart. Do not look in order to lust. Said Jesus, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And when they heard those words, those, those words would have put a smile on the face of anybody sitting on that mountain listening to Jesus. Then, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. The faces would have contorted. Even scribes and Pharisees don't get to see God. What is this? Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery and will be destroyed with his whole body in hell. You know, even the Pharisees were honest enough to admit guilt. Sometime later, the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus and if condemned, she would have been stoned to death and her body would have been dumped in that valley of Hinnom. And Jesus said, okay, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone. And the Pharisees all droop off one by one, the older ones first. All of them are convicted of sin, as in that sin of adultery. There was only one person standing there who was without sin. And he didn't pick up a stone either. He didn't leave. He said, Neither do I condemn you, but go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, when, when by the grace of God, through the Spirit, we recognize our sinful natures, and we turn to God, repenting and, and seeking forgiveness and renewal, we will be forgiven, and we will receive renewal. You see, Jesus' body was thrown into hell, for my adultery, for your adultery, for our adultery. Provided, of course, and that's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we not only hear the words of Christ and say that we believe, but that we also do the words of Christ. And, and what that means and, and how we can do that, that's what will be in the second sermon later today. For this moment, just be awed. Be awed by the beauty of the creatures that we are. Humans created as males and females to be the image of God, to reveal in our actions the love and loyalty of God, and to show what God is like. Appreciate in all of that how special marriage is, and how special sexual intimacy is. Humans, they're the crown of creation. Marriage is the diamond in that crown. Sexual intimacy is the sparkle in that diamond. But when you get that, then adultery and every form of sexual aberration 
will horrify you. And, and then you'll heed the warning of Jesus. And also these words of the Apostle Paul. And I want you to think now again of the fig leaves and the garments that God made for the first humans. For there's something better yet. Paul talks about it. This is from Romans 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you become pure in heart. And that's when you will see God. Amen. Let's pray.